0: guys welcome to the 18th episode of the all things strength and wellness podcast i'm your host once again robbie burke and on this episode i interviewed brad pilon of eat stop eat brad is the author of two ebooks eat stop eat and how much protein brad was one of the first authors i read who was a proponent of intermittent fasting so on this podcast me and brad discussed everything related to intermittent fasting so i hope you guys really enjoy this episode Okay, Mr. Brad Pilon, as with all my guests, it's an absolute honor to have you on the podcast. Just for anyone who isn't too familiar with your background, just fill us in.
1: Okay, so uh, my background is kind of crazy. I, I grew up my entire life kind of in the you know, the bodybuilding, health and fitness scene. At age 15, 16, I was working at my local supplement shop. I went from there to university to study to be a dietitian. When I finished university, I decided I didn't want to be a dietitian, so I went and worked in the supplement industry doing research and development. I uh, spent seven years there, uh, actually grew with one of the world's largest supplement companies. It was very, very fun, very interesting stuff. But after six or seven years, I kind of got, you know, the itch to go back to school. So I left my job, uh, so I just quit it midstream and uh, signed back up for graduate work. And it was during the graduate work that I started studying the, uh, the metabolic effects of short periods of fasting. And that's what led to me writing East Up
0: Who would you say have been your biggest influences on you professionally and then personally?
1: Oh, a uh, good question. So, hmm. I mean, outside of the, you know, your typical answer of obviously like my parents and, uh, and my wife for never letting me quit on this. People that I've I've really looked up to in terms of their in terms of the research, there isn't really any one person stuck out because if you when you go through ESOP, you kind of realize that each area has that you know the one or two people that are really sort of king of the mountain, right? So in terms of the, the growth hormone response to, to fasting, I mean Helene Norland did some great work there. Um, but then again, it, when you go to just introducing. The, the idea of fasting to the world, there's another researcher. In terms of um, how they conduct themselves online, uh, I've always been a fan of the way, the way Craig Valentine kind of approached the, the online world. So I've taken sort of a little bit from everybody, but in, in general, it's just kind of been the, the people around me, the, the people who actually see day-to-day rather than the people who are sort of online staring back at me on a computer screen.
0: So Brad, how did you how did you become Brad Pilon of Eat Stop E Because you know, as I said to you before, um, like you were the first person that I read that, that was talking about fasting, and to me it was like a complete like just you know complete opposite of what I was told. And then when, when once I heard about you, I heard about Martin Burke, and so you know, how did you become Brad Pilon of Eat Stop E Yeah, you know, it, basically it's because I
1: it started with sort of a deep hatred of the idea of fasting, right? Like I, I came. From from bodybuilding, I came from one of the world's largest bodybuilding supplement companies that was full of you know young employees who lived and breathed bodybuilding. Right, like um, every year that company had an in-house bodybuilding competition where all the employees would literally we'd, we'd have a contest and the you know the level of
0: surprised you the most is a benefit?
1: I guess what really surprised me the most at the start was the, well, really was my own ignorance. <laughs> that was the most surprising part, right? Because I thought I knew it all. Um, I, I just, I'm really glad that the internet as the way we know it just wasn't around back then otherwise I'd, I'd look like a fool. See, the most startling thing I guess was the, the fact that you really don't lose muscle that the common idea that the body just immediately turns to muscle the minute you don't eat, you know, when you really stop and think about it, just how ridiculous that even that concept is. And In fact, your, your body has muscle sparing mechanisms built into it, and that's what the fasted state actually is. The, the hormonal regulations that occur during fasting, insulin going down, growth hormone going up, you know, that being released from your fat store to be used as energy all happens as a way to preserve muscle mass, right? It, it's muscle is not a storage form of energy, you, your fat is, and that was the main thing that well, you know, sounds common sense. I'm sure half the people on this podcast are going to be like, yeah, duh, right? For, for me back then, that was actually pretty startling because I've been taught and had reinforced in me over and over again that if you don't eat, your muscle just literally just falls off your body. Yeah. So that one was, was really shocking to me. The You know, looking back at it, knowing how slow changes in your muscle happen, you know, you don't build muscle overnight. You're certainly not going to lose it overnight. But, you know, at the time, that was kind of revolutionary to me. Uh, same with, you know, the basic premise of, of metabolic rate. The fact that you're, you how many calories you burn in a day isn't, you know, massively dependent on how much you ate in the last couple hours, but it's more just dependent on the the day-to-day process of human life, that the majority of your calorie burning when you're resting is from things you can't control, right, from the activity of your liver and your kidneys and your heart and your lungs and your brain, these things. You know, things that are kind of, they do their job with or without you thinking about it, that's what drives your metabolic rate when you're resting. It was things like that, you know, really realizing that, man, the... The human body is amazing. It's just a phenomenal machine that we don't fully understand. And it has the capacity to do amazing things like burn fat. You just sometimes have to get out of its way, right, and stop trying to force it to do things. And the easiest way to lose fat is to simply not eat and give your body a chance to burn fat. That, that was the part that was really, as funny as it sounds, revolutionary to me.
0: Do you think that fasting is is something anyone can implement straight away, or do you think they need to get to a certain level of health and then they, then fasting can be beneficial?
1: That's uh, a good question. I, no, I don't think that everybody can use fasting right away, but I also don't think it's necessarily a health thing. Now, there, there are people with metabolic conditions, diabetes, that kind of thing, who really, if they're going to try out fasting, they should do it with their physician or doctor alongside them. But for most people who have problems fasting, it's not what it is to begin with. It's literally a mindset thing where if you start out trying to do a fast and in the back of your mind you're worried you're actually doing something negative to your body, that fast is going to suck. It's going to be horrible. Some people just really aren't ready to let go of the concept of living their life you know, making many, many day-to-day food choices, right? The fact that literally give up on that and be like, "Ah, you know, for the next 24 hours, I'm not making any food choices except to not eat. That's very difficult for some people, and I think that some people need to ease into it. Um, From a metabolic perspective, yes, the leaner you get, the easier fasting becomes. Um, People who are really overweight and who have been sort of in a constant fed state for a large portion of their lives, Switching back over to a fast state, you know, the first once or twice, <laughs> once or twice, the first one or two times you do it, you know, it, it may not be the easiest thing in the world. Um, fasting is by no means special in that just like on any day, you know, regardless of fasting, on any day, you're going to wake up and have just an amazing day, and you're going to wake up and have days you just want to go back to bed, right? Fasting doesn't change that. So some days you're fasting, and you're just going to be ready to take on life. In other days, you're going to be fasting, and you're going to be sitting there going, this, this sucks. Right? It's it's really realizing that, well, fasting is an amazing way to burn fat. It is, it's a simple, simple way to control calories. It's not magic. So just like any other day, you're going to have good fast and bad fasts. And if you're the type of person who just, through complete happenstance, happened to have a bad fast on one of their first fasts, just have to realize the world with it. You know, it's, it's okay, but every fast is not going to be this bad. Maybe next one I'll do a little bit you know, a smaller one or I'll drink a bit more water or maybe I'll get a better night's sleep before I try again. But just about everybody can eventually adapt to the point where the fasting is, is a, a relatively harmless from a from a mental standpoint, Weighted control calories and lose fat.
0: Well, c- can you remember what your first fast was like? How did that feel?
1: Oh, uh, I was scared. <laughs> I was <laughs> so, okay, so my my first fast, because... Um, Occasionally, I, I obviously I'm into self experimentation, and because I'm sometimes can be a real dolt and, and go too extreme. My first fast was 72 hours long.
0: Ooh.
1: yeah, and it was it was the worst experience of not of my life. But I'll just tell you, it wasn't fun. Right, and that's what made me realize I'm like, there's no point to this because what I'm trying to do is make dieting easier because I've dieted for a bodybuilding show and I know that's 12 to 16 weeks of. Sucking, right? Like yeah, yeah you look yeah. great, but man, every single day is a food decision. Every couple hours you're pulling out a Tupperware container and you're telling yourself that it's because you're you're better than everybody, so you're eating clean and they all suck and you are awesome. You know it's just it's a grind. And I think I wanted to get rid of that grind, right? Because if you're truly, truly dedicated, you know, you have a And you're like, no, man, I, it didn't work for me. I didn't really sleep that well. Something was off. You can experiment, and maybe you want to fast 7 p.m. to 7 p.m., and then that nighttime starts just better for you. So by breaking it down to 24 hours, it gave way more flexibility. By making it go overnight, you can, you can really manipulate your days better. And so after the 72-hour fast, I think it took me a couple of weeks, and then I started trying that. And that's when I really got into the groove of it. But the problem was I was still trying to do every other day. And, let's see, how long ago was that? Okay, so I had, my wife was pregnant with my first child. I was in school full-time, but also obviously trying to line up some sort of, you know, job when I was done school, because I have not even thought of publishing stuff yet. And what I realized was that fasting every other day, because so much of our day-to-day social activities revolve around food, it started to get kind of, Cumbersome, right? Because people would want to go for lunch with me, or I'd I'd want to network with someone who might have a job possibility. They want to meet at a coffee shop, right? So it got to the point where I realized, I'm like, this is this is good. I'm on to something, but it still needs to be more flexible. This is still definitely cumbersome. I'm definitely still on a diet, you know. I and I made the mistake, the horrible mistake, of going out for dinner with friends and ordering just a, a water. (laughs) <laughs> and that's when you realize the social constructs of dining together are very, very important. And if you're sitting at a table not eating what everybody else is eating, it's very awkward. It's not fun for anybody because to everybody else, they're now hyper-aware of the fact that they're eating. Okay? And you've kind of ruined the celebration for them. You're hyper-aware that everybody else is eating, so you really want to eat. And it just, it just wasn't good. So from there, I progressed to, you know what, if I do this once or twice a week, I'm still going to lose weight. I'm going to eat responsibly on your other days, not dieting, but responsibly, right? So not like a kid the day after Halloween, but just as normal as normal can be. But then once or twice a week, I can throw in a 24-hour fast. And by making it once or twice, you know, if I was planning on fasting today, but a big thing happened and I couldn't, that's no problem. It can be flexible. I can fast tomorrow. So my first fast was horrible. My second fast was okay. It took a couple of fasts before I even gave up on, like, you know, maybe needing to bring some food with me just in case I didn't feel great. <laughs> and then, uh, by, by about a month into it, I, I was off I was to the races. I found a way. It was really flexible, really easy. I was measuring my blood glucose throughout the entire 24 hour fast with just a simple glucometer. That's when I started experimenting with working out during a fast. And then I was at the time, this is remember pre kid, um, I was doing Krav Maga, which is like a kind of mixed martial arts of fighting style. And I could do Krav Maga for an hour, and then an hour of combatives, which just basically means beating the crap out of each other, for an hour afterwards, while fasted, measuring my blood glucose can be fine. And that's when I realized there, that I was like, okay, the research is right. I mean, your body's amazing. It, for a healthy person, it can regulate blood sugar pretty well. If I want to, I don't see any issues with training during a fast. So it all came together pretty quickly. And in, in the course of the maybe two months after that initial 72 hour fast I'd gotten right down to basically what stuff is today and then it just was uh, about a year of self-experimentation where my grad work and then bingo bingo I've been fasting since I just said bingo bingo wow <laughs>
0: that's alright and <laughs> um, have you noticed a big difference between males and females when it comes to fasting
1: no to, to tell you the truth I know that's been brought up online um, mostly because of Uh, Some animal research. Uh, I do know that at the leaner side of things, right? So, as as odd as it sounds, because guys traditionally we have lower body fat, like roughly about half the amount of women. If you just want to sort of, you know, generalize massively, um, for us to get into lean contest shape, we're just slightly below that kind of that healthy range, right? So if you consider. roughly a 10% body fat for most guys to be a nice, sort of, you consider that person healthy, you consider that fine. Um, for a woman, the same thing would be around 20%. But then for a guy to get, you know, start getting into, like, good, lean, holy cow, that guy's going to do a contest shape, now we're talking 7-8%. So it's not really that large of a, jo- a drop. But for women, all of a sudden, we're talking 15%. In those low levels of body fat, what happens is Obviously, if the fat is that low, there's simply less fat available as an energy store. Um, And this is where the trick comes in, is that for the average person, this is still not really an issue. For the hyperactive person, not hyperactive, but like very active, now what you've done is you've created a situation where you're probably dieting, you're also excessively active, and you're fasting. In that situation, um when you have those three together, the negatives are more pronounced in women. I think they're still there in men, but I think they're more pronounced in women. And the important thing to remember there is that Eat Stop Eat and the idea of intermittent fasting was meant to be a replacement for hardcore dieting and excessive exercise, not an addition to it. When you add it on top of all those things, that's when bad things can start to happen. I want people to be able to kind of loosen up on the other areas of their life by using fasting not just drop fasting on top of, you know, your four hours of extreme exercise every single week combined with, you know, hardcore dieting with low-carb, you know, mixing it all together, I want you to loosen up on everything else. So the difference is, is there at that low level, and it's more pronounced. I think that guys still, we, suffer very similar to women when we're doing that excessive amount of exercise, dieting, and throwing fasting only for us, if you do see um, a decrease in testosterone or a decrease in energy, it's not as obvious as it would be in a woman who maybe um, they go a man awake and lose their period at low levels of body fat, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah. it's more obvious in them, but I don't think it's that much different. I think that at low levels of body fat, regardless of if you're a man or a woman, Right. The, the benefit of IF is it allows you to loosen up on the dieting and the exercise. So if you want to keep dieting and exercising in a sort of a hardcore fashion, then maybe what you want to loosen up on is the fasting. I just don't think you should do all three hardcore, if that makes
0: sense. You, you've spoken there about training while fasting. W- what is your opinions on improving strength, uh, endurance, and can you also gain muscle while doing something like E-stoppy?
1: Yeah, okay, so the muscle thing is an interesting one because we constantly argue back and forth uh, on whether or not a caloric surplus is needed for muscle building. And the problem is we then we have to define a caloric surplus because to me, if the calories are being used to build muscle, which is a process within the body, then it's not a surplus. It's, it's part of your daily needs, right? A surplus to me is when an amount of calories has been eaten that past as much muscle building as you can do, there's still excess calories and therefore being stored as fat. Uh, so I don't think you need that level of surplus. You do need to supply calories for the muscle building process. I just don't know a where those calories need to come from because remember you have calories available from your body fat, and b how you know <laughs> how massive the need is because muscle grows very slowly. I don't think it's an on-off switch. So I don't think that if you know if my calorie needs for a day are 2,700. If I eat 2,701, I'm building muscle, but if I eat 2,699, I'm not, right? So I think it, it's a, a gradient. Meaning that I believe you can be in a slight deficit and build muscle just a bit slower, right? So 90% of max muscle building speed, I guess. The other thing is muscle is built slowly. And with Eat, Stop, eat, there are even on an extreme version where you are fasting twice a week, you know there's a three-day period followed by a two-day period where you are eating, right? So if on those days you're eating at or slightly above maintenance, how does it all work out? What I have found is long-term, and you don't really measure muscle growth daily, but long-term, we've had numerous people with DEXA measurements, including myself, gain a small amount of muscle, lose a small amount of fat, over three to four months of fasting. So it's obviously possible in the long term. I just don't know if, had I been not fasting, instead of gaining three pounds, would I have gained 3.25. right? Something something as trivial as that. Yeah, so, yeah. yes, the answer is yes, I do believe you can build muscle while implementing fasting. I'm not sure if you build muscle if you're fasting and dieting at the same time, if you're going to build muscle as fast as you could have. But, again, I don't know if that's really the issue for most people. Uh, In terms of training while fasting, um, I've actually, I've really come to enjoy it. So, I've improved on high rep training during a fast. I have improved on strength one rep max type training during a fast. Now, I don't always choose to train during a fast. I don't go out of my way to train during a fast, because I really like to view my fasts as, like, my kind of Western recovery time. You know, since I'm not eating, I'm not spending time, you know, I'm not stressing my body with food. I figure, hey, if I can do it, why not take this as a complete recovery day and also not train? Maybe just go for a walk on days fasting. But on times where I have increased the frequency of my training, up to four, even five times a week, obviously, you end up training during fasting, and I just learned not to sweat it. The in fact, the only thing I've learned from this whole experiment is that massive overeating actually ruins my training that day. Um, not so much the high rep stuff, but sorry, not so much the strength stuff, but high rep stuff for some reason this doesn't work for me. It could just be a completely anecdotal, a personal thing for me, but it's something I have learned. So in general, the fasting hasn't really affected my training in any way. I don't, I don't know my way to train during a fast, but if it happens, I'm not too concerned about it.
0: And have you Seen any uh, benefits with regards to endurance type training and
1: fasting? I'm trying to think if I do anything in in endurance. I tell you the truth, I don't do anything that would warrant an answer there. I mean, the closest thing to endurance I do during a fast is twenty-minute squats. (laughs)
0: Yeah, and
1: and, and I've improved them, you know. And but in terms of like running with my kids, which is kind of an endurance activity, it's not like on my fast days I'm laying on my couch dying. (laughs) Um, I can go for a walk. We, we we live out kind of out in the country, so if we want to go for a long hike, it's not like Daddy can't go because he's fasting. Uh, I've never had it hold me back in a day-to-day activity. Um, if I were to compete in like an endurance event, and my goal wasn't to lose fat, then maybe I just probably wouldn't be fasting because my goal would be. To perform an endurance event, so I guess part of that would be having your priorities straight. Right, I would never do endurance events to try to lose fat, anyways. Have you read any any research
0: though about fasting and endurance?
1: Yeah, so the, what the research on in, in long term training is and again, this is what really comes down to your personal goals. That type of training, you will burn slightly more fat if you are doing sort of endurance training while fasting. I, I think real, realistically, real life, is it going to make a difference in how you look? Probably not. You will also see a decrease in, in performance slightly. Um, now, I've had people who have completed the massive runs way longer than I would have half marathons while fasted, but it's not like they also per, per, posted their personal best time. Mm. So I guess it really comes down to, if you're truly competing in a different sense, then obviously fasting is maybe not the best thing for you. But if you feel like just going out and going for a run and don't really care if it takes you, you know, 25 minutes or 27 minutes, then it's probably not an issue. I,
0: I remember hearing you speak one time and you were, you, you know, you, you kind of got into a discussion of the actual feeling of being hungry. Like, most people just have no idea what it actually is like to be hungry. Can you just talk about that?
1: Yeah, so what we experience in day-to-day life and anybody who lives in a fairly affluent society um, is extreme wanting for food, and that wanting is entrained in us, it is hormonal, but it's because we've learned to expect specific foods at specific times, we've learned to associate certain feelings with certain foods. I mean, we really have an awkward situation because we don't really have a relationship with food because food is an inanimate object, but we do have strong feelings towards food. So we have feelings but not a relationship because the food doesn't love us back, right? this wanting comes from, you know, habit. And I, I can remember specifically driving into town, so I'm like 10 minutes out of town, because I wanted a Subway sandwich. And like I got, I mean, I just wanted one. Um, I got to Subway, and they had closed early for some event or something, and I was mad, like angry, because I wanted a Sub. Now, everything else was open, right? So, like, I mean, right beside that Subway, there's... um like a place to get wraps. Down the street from there, there's a burger place. I mean, I could have eaten anywhere. But I was angry at this because the food I wanted was not available to me. And that's a great example of just how strong wanting can be. This wanting, like I said, is entrained, right? We, we teach our bodies to want food at certain times, So it really is hormonal, right? Your, your stomach will growl as if you're actually hungry. The difference is it's not because of a physiological need for food. It's an emotional need for food. And that's one part that I think a lot of people really can take from fasting, is that in a 24-hour period, if you're paying attention, you can really figure out the times, the places, and the people that make you eat. And if you take that away from fasting, the times where you're eating, you just become a better eater, right? You realize it like that, wow. Like, th- this morning I was fasting. I went to grab a coffee, and I almost, almost ordered a donut. And that's when I realized you know what, I've been getting way too many donuts with my coffee. It's obviously become a habit, because I wasn't thinking about it. It wasn't like I was like, you know what, a nice treat for today would be a donut. It was just instant. I was just going to order it. Fasting allows you to kind of take a a third-person view of of how you're eating and then really identify areas that are, you know, ingrained wants bad habits of eating versus true times to eat, because... If you learn through fasting that you don't have to eat at any specific time, then you gain the freedom of being able to choose when you want to eat. And since there's, for everybody, an amount of calories that will obviously lead to increasing fat, we just can't eat at raw impulse. So we do have to make decisions, right? So I'm home alone today for the next four or five hours, so I could just eat. I could eat while I'm writing, eat while I'm doing this podcast. But my kids are coming home, and what I would really like to do is have a nice big dinner with them. So I'm probably not going to eat that much today. I'm going to wait for my, and I'm not fasting today. I'm just going to, you know, maybe have a lunch, a light lunch, so that tonight at dinner, I can have a large dinner. That's the freedom I've learned from fasting. It's since I'm free to choose when to eat. I know roughly how much I should eat. I can pick how and when I do that eating.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know if I read this, or, or if I if I read on your Facebook or if I heard you say too, but you were also speaking about people or clients say to you sometimes, you know, what should I eat to lose weight? And then you kind of go, think about that question for a second.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's well, you know, and that's partly my fault. I'm as guilty that as everybody else because it stems from the industry of weight loss, yeah. Right? yeah so if exactly. you consider the fact that I have something, I need to sell you something, and I know that you're interested in losing weight, then the only thing I really can sell you is either a workout or something to consume. So from a consuming standpoint, I I don't care if you want to lose weight. I think that's awesome. I really do. I can fully endorse it as long as you keep buying whatever I'm selling, right? So the message has really become whether it's a breakfast cereal, whether it's a certain style of eating, whether it's whatever it is, you can keep trying to lose weight, just keep buying our stuff. And that's where the ingrained societal message of what should I eat to lose weight comes from, right? So and if you're a food company, forget forget the big bad supplement companies, we always pick on them. If you're a food company, you still don't want people eating less, right? So if you are selling chicken and you're worried that everybody's obese they're going to stop eating chicken, you tell them, no, no, no. No, no, you keep eating chicken. You just here here's an organic chicken. It's $2 more, but, hey, this is the stuff you want to eat if you're going to try to become healthy and lose weight. Yeah. It's always a battle to be the food on the top of people's minds. And right now, that's not... It's not because you're the cheapest food. Really, to be on top of people's mind, you have to be the healthiest food. And if you're the healthiest food, if you're the food people want to eat when they can charge a premium, and that's where that comes from.
0: Have you ever had any um, anyone ask about fasting for pregnancy?
1: Yeah. Yeah, and it was, but again, it's a priority thing. I think that, based on the research, fasting during breastfeeding is something that is 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 possible, something for you to easily take up with whoever's in charge of your pregnancy, whether it's a midwife or, or your physician. Fasting during pregnancy, um, the number one priority at the time is the fact you're pregnant. Right? And, and I know that dealing with the weight gain of, of pregnancy uh, can be emotionally and physically difficult for a lot of women, and I understand the inclination to fast. Uh, I have a friend who's pregnant right now and she was saying that you know the hardest part for her right now about being pregnant is that sometimes she's actually just not hungry, doesn't feel well, but she eats for the baby. And it's very, it's, it's kind of a hard emotional decision for her. But for me, I mean, the number one priority is the baby. And you know, by no means am I an expert in pregnancy. So I would say for that nine month period, you know, even the time you're trying to continue, you're doing it on purpose. So that year long period,
0: yeah.
1: um, maybe avoid the fasting. And then once you've had your child, the child's healthy, everything's going well, you're getting back into a routine, then maybe start it up again. Yeah.
0: The, the other book you wrote was How Much Protein, and, and uh, that, that was a very interesting book. Can you just speak about this kind of concept of how much protein?
1: Yeah, it, it was the number one question. Um, after I launched Eat stuff Eat in 2007, it was what about protein, how much protein, during that 24 hours should I be eating protein? And it was always, I mean, I, I spent six years selling protein, right, designing protein supplements, doing research on stuff, funding research on, on, on protein supplements. So it was something that was always near and dear to my heart. And be perfectly honest, I really wanted to work. Right? I mean, if, if the key, the difference between me being 175 pounds in a photo shoot and 185 pounds in a photo shoot is just, you know, eating 30 or 40 pounds, 30 or 40 more grams of protein a day, I'm all in. That's fantastic. But I don't want to tell people that's the answer if it's not. So that's what, how much protein came from. It was really just dissecting all the available protein research that I could find, it was doing specific measurements, so I divided it into categories, right? I divided the ones that were measuring surrogate endpoints for muscle growth, the ones that didn't actually measure any change in muscle size or weight, but measured things that we think mean the muscle is growing, whether that's you know amino acids entering a muscle or the activation of signaling molecules in your body like mTOR or simply changing hormones in your body. I looked at those ones. But then I also looked at all the studies that simply just gave people more protein, had them work out and measured the amount of lean body mass or muscle mass they had. And it was really interesting because it just, A, the, the idea of massive amounts of protein, you know, so three, four, 500 grams a day, there's just nothing on it. right? There's, there's no research that's like, hey, we, we put a group of people on 500 grams of protein a day and look what happened. We don't, we don't really have that. What we do have is a nice amount of evidence that, yes, a high-protein diet, Does seem to be related to an ability to build either more muscle or to build muscle faster, because they might just be getting to the same point quicker. Right, so that was one of the main main things I found. Now, by a high protein diet, I'm talking about a scientifically high protein diet, which for the average man or woman generally falls in between a range of like 90 to 120 grams of protein a day. So you know, more than almost double what most governments recommend. So it's still high protein, yeah. but not the massive amounts that we've been led to believe by in sort of the fitness industry. And the other thing I realized is that the amount of muscle people tend to gain during, an, you know, an 8 to 16-week highly supervised weight training protocol in a research study isn't massive, right? I mean, we're looking at 3 to 5 pounds of muscle. The cool thing is, is what we've learned is that 3 to 5 pounds of muscle is enough to make you look going from average to, oh, hey, that guy or girl works out. And if you go from gaining 3 to 5 pounds to 10 to 14 pounds, now you're like, well, that guy is, or that girl is muscular, right? So it doesn't take that much muscle to change a person's look. It may look like they gained 30 pounds of muscle. Chances are it was more in 10 to 12 range if they're that impressive. So it's, it's, it's for a full-grown adult, right? A, a younger person, 16, 17, 18, 19, all the way to about 23, they've got that juvenile muscle growth going on as well where they're simply filling out for lack of better terms. But for an adult, you know, a fully-grown or girl to put on 5, 10 pounds of muscle is truly impressive. But when you think about that, and that makes sense why massive amounts of protein aren't really needed, and so high protein but not massive, is because putting on that amount of muscle over 8, 16, 20 weeks it just doesn't add up to being a need for high muscle protein. So that's what I really found with, with how much protein was that the amount mattered. The timing didn't seem to matter as much. Um, in fact, it, it's starting to really kind of look like breaking it up into, you know, a couple meals spread throughout the day rather than that sort of protein pulsing that we've been doing. Eating protein every couple hours may even be better for muscle gain. Um, but in general, it just sort of comes down to, eh, as long as you're getting enough, you're getting enough, as long as it's high-quality protein and uh, as long as you're fairly consistent with it. Missing a 24-hour period now and then probably is not a big deal as long as, over the course of a week, you average out to about the amount of protein you need. Um, stressing over whether or not you got your protein you know, within 20 minutes after your workout doesn't seem to be that important either because it really seems to be, if you're, if you're training with any sort of consistency, then every meal you eat is both pre-workout and post-workout because the, the effect that a workout has of sensitizing your muscle to the anabolic effect of eating protein seems to last for at least 48 hours. Yeah. So it just becomes sort of important to eat like a normal person would eat and just make sure maybe there's a bit more protein in your diet than the 60 grams that's recommended and muscle building should happen. The only caveat I'll place into that is that how much protein, the book, was written specifically to answer the question how much protein to build muscle and not necessarily, you know, what's the best amount of protein for a human to eat to be healthy or to live a long life or to avoid cancer. I didn't cover any of that. Specifically, all I wanted to know because it's still so near and dear to my heart is how much protein to allow the muscle building to happen. Yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, Brad... What is the limited amount of time you'd need to fast to get the benefits from it? And then at the other end of that extreme, wh- where where is the diminishing return on a fasting? Like how far along, how, how long of a fast is beneficial till, till it becomes non-beneficial?
1: Yeah. Okay, so, really easy question. Um, the minimum length depends on the size of your last meal, or roughly just how many calories you've eaten in a couple hours before you start your fast, right? So, I mean, if I... If I go in my kitchen right now, I'll grab like a little yogurt, an apple, and you know decide. I then mean, maybe I decide there, okay, I'm fasting. I'll probably be in the fastest state in the next like four hours. Yeah. If I go in my kitchen, I'm like, oh, I'm gonna make up some mashed sweet potatoes. I'm gonna finish off that chicken breast. I'm gonna make some bacon, and I'm gonna eat some, some broccoli. Just a big meal. I may not enter the fastest state for eight, nine hours. Right. So I think the minimum time to just make sure you have got some time in that window. Is, is 12 hours. And the thing I like about 12 hours is even for the person who looks at me like I'm crazy when I say 24 and they go, bread them, I am never, ever, ever going to fast at 24 hours Just stop talking about it. At least that person, I can go, okay, look, I, I get it. You're not going to do it. What I'd like you to do at least, at the very least, is to try this out is tonight, stop eating at like 9. And then tomorrow morning, maybe start eating again at Nine, right? Just give yourself a 12-hour, just a little 12-hour window. Extend that nighttime one. That's all I'm asking you to do. I find that that, for people who just don't want to fast but are still having problems with sort of traditional dieting, that tends to go a long way. Now, in terms of how long can you fast forward, this is completely dependent on how much body fat you have. Um, the more fat you have, probably the longer you can handle. Technically or theoretically, you, you, know, you could just keep going. The problem is, and like I explained when I tried 72 hours, is that it kind of starts to really be boring and not fun. And for that reason, I, no matter how much fat you have, I really don't like you going over 24 hours because I want the fast to be positively reinforced. And by, by that I mean, I want you to decide when they end. So if you think, I'm going to stop fasting today at noon, and all of a sudden it's noon and you're done, you know, that was you, you did it. What I don't want is I'm going to fast until I can't possibly fast anymore, then I'm going to fail and start eating. And that's a negative reinforcement. And that's what reminds me of traditional dieting. If you think about what traditional dieting is, it's, okay, I'm going to eat clean and healthy for the next 16 weeks. And it also just becomes a slow, inevitable march to when you mess up. And when you mess up on that kind of mentality, you know, even though it's just like because you had one bite of your kid's cookie or something, you feel like you have blown the entire diet, and there's time to just I'm going to binge now, I'm going to take a week off and just eat whatever I want because I, I failed. And what you're doing is you're negatively, negatively reinforcing your ability to control how much you eat. You do that a couple times in a row, and now you're that person who, you know, every couple weeks is telling his friends they're going to start a diet, and then they blow it that weekend, or work gets stressful. Or you've, you've created this, this habit of, of breaking the diet or breaking the fast, um, on terms other than the terms you set. So the reason I like 24 is almost everybody can do 24 hours. And if you do it, and you complete it, and you're done on your terms, you're positively reinforcing the fact that you can do this. And that's, I think, a large part of it, which makes fasting easier the longer you do it. So the minimum 12 hours, the maximum, I really don't like people going over 24. There are a lot of people out there who like 36 and it seems to fit. I'm not going to tell you not to do that because it's your lifestyle. But for me personally, what I like to recommend is sort of a of 24 and a minimum of 12. Um, what,
0: what do you think of the 16 type of fasting?
1: Yeah, it uh, works fantastic for, for a lot of people. It really comes down to just what fits your lifestyle best. If, if you have a lifestyle where you can fast every day till 2 or, or whatever the case may be, it fits, you enjoy it, that's, that's awesome. If you get to the point where you're like, ah, and you want to take a break from this, switch over to the stop Deep style and then switch back when you feel like it. I mean, there, there really isn't a perfect way to fast. What we're doing is giving you control over when you eat, right? So you can switch back and forth between two. I don't really like the idea of doing both at the same time. Um, a lot of people can do it. A lot of people get good results from it. I just worry that eventually it leads to... You're getting to the point where you're almost intermittent feeding. Like you're fasting so much, you're basically taking short breaks from your fasting to eat. And I, I, I like it the other way around. I want you to be eating the majority of the time and then taking the occasional break from eating. So you know, do one or the other, switch back and forth, find one that works for you. What works for you is going to change. So just like with Eat, Stop, Eat, you might have done three or four months of fasting, 2 p.m., 2 p.m., and it's just been awesome. And then you went through two or three weeks where just just wasn't working, so you switch the time, and all of a sudden that little change makes everything better. Your life changes, right? So you might be doing ESOPE and just be like, you know what? I just, just deciding what day to fast is too much for me. I'm just going to fast every day for a bit. If that works at that time, go for it. But at the same time, if you're fasting every day and you're like, this is just getting too much, like it's almost stressful, stop. Do ESOPE for a while. I really don't think there's a a perfect way as much as there's a perfect way for you in your current.
0: Pretty much what I thought. Do Do
1: you allow any liquids or, or anything during a fast? Yeah, liquids for sure. I mean, if you want to do black coffee, fine. You want to do tea, fine. Water, sparkling water. I don't even really mind if you want to do like a diet pop that's laced with aspartame. Right, it's your decision whether or not you're a diet pop drinker. Um, <laughs> and I don't think having one or two during a fast, once or twice a week, is nearly as bad as the people who drink you know gallons of the stuff every single day. So do what you need to do to make it through your fast. Make sure you stay hydrated, which means, you know, be conscious of, of the fact you are fasting. You have an extra glass of water or two. What a lot of people don't realize is that a lot of the liquid we take in normally comes from our food, right? Most food is, is abundantly full of water. Since you're not eating, you need to kind of replace that. So just make make an attempt to drink. What I don't like during a fast is, it's funny it sounds eating, right? If you're eating, you're not fasting, you're just You're dieting, right, and so I don't like the fact that people are trying to find ways to kind of cheat the fast by eating, because I think you lose one of the major benefits, which is learning to go without, so when people ask about, can I put, you know, a half teaspoon of cream in my coffee, the rule is, if you can go without, go without, but if you really can't, then don't, right, so if if I say, no, you, you cannot put a half teaspoon of cream in your coffee, and you're like, well, fine, I'm not fasting then. Well, then it didn't really benefit you, right? there's still benefits to be had from fasting. Yeah. But if you're just asking because you're trying to find secret ways to, you know, to hack a fast, whether it's you know, celery and then carrots and then coffee, it's, it's going to get to the point where you're just going to gradually not fast anymore. And you're going to lose a lot of the benefits from the fasting, which is learning to have control over when you eat. If you're just eating just less when you're fasting, but in all the times that you normally have found habits to eat, There's really no reset going on, right? You're really not learning, you're not learning to go without you can do this, you're just eating all the time, you normally eat just for one day a week you're eating a bit less, and i just worry that's going to gradually just turn into not fasting.
0: What have been your biggest criticisms, like what are the biggest criticisms that you get when you come out with this eating philosophy? Well, it's
1: funny, is it online, you know, where people are sort of they're very into this, they're very educated, they read about this stuff. You know, the criticisms have kind of disappeared. Now it's just, you know, what kind of fasting they like, et cetera. But in the real world, <laughs> it's all the very basic things. I was just on the national news in Canada, and, you know, they got me to explain fasting, and then they cut, of the course, to a dietician, and the very first thing she said is, like, oh, you'll lose muscle. Yeah. So it's still, it's the very basic premises that are the ones that we constantly have to fight to help the rest of the world kind of improve their health. So people, people who don't work out at all, who, who do not lift a weight at all, are still the ones, when you mention fasting, they're going to be like, what is my muscle mass? They're be like, what about it? You've got none, right? Like it's, <laughs> um, but it's, it's the main concern. It's the thing that kind of been the quick argument from authority is the one that will always be on the top people's minds. So if you tell people to work out, which, a quick argument from authority is, yeah, but when I stop working in all, the muscle is going to turn to fat. If you tell someone you know, squat to squat throughout them, they're like, ah, what about my knees, right? So, it's always that very basic answer that you think you've answered a million times. It will still be the main thing of holding people back. It will still be their main concern. So, with fasting, it's still metabolism and, and muscle loss. And that's the one thing I just constantly have to remind myself that even though I've answered it like a million times, the person asking the question is probably the first time they're asking it. So don't be rude, just remember that this is their first time asking it and answer it appropriately. But that will always, I think, always, will always be the issue with fasting It's those two things.
0: Yeah, yeah. there's just, <coughs> I don't know, have you ever heard of a, of a researcher called Ray Pete
1: How do you spell the last name?
0: Uh, P-E-A-T. No. Well, he's, he, he's kind of a, he he's a well-known sort of uh, biologist and uh, he kind of like he there's a lot of people that are really really into his into his work and, and ray like w- ray is is completely against any sort of fasting because he believes that, you know it, it, it provokes too much stress and cortisol to the organism you know I, I think when he talks about that he means more so long-term fasting but he also is against using free fatty acids as a main fuel source for the body because he feels well he he claims that it blocks mitochondrial Respiration, it blocks the glucose uptake, but mitochondrial respiration. Have you ever heard anything
1: about that? Well, he's right. I mean, it, to tell you the truth, is that in a perfect world, none of us should have to burn fat because we wouldn't be fat. Yeah. Right? So, in a perfect world, we're all walking around with six pack abs and then chisel chest and, and everything's awesome. Yeah, I mean, the, the best thing to do is never get in a situation where you have to diet. Mm. Right? But past that, you know, back in the real world, the second best thing to do is if you are overweight, deal with it, right? You go through corrective measures to get rid of extra fat, and that involves burning fat. Does, fat, does the act of burning fat decrease the amount of glucose you're burning? Absolutely, because you can only burn a certain amount of anything to, that's your metabolic rate, right? So if you're burning 2,000 calories in a day and 1,000 are coming from fat, well, that's 1,000 that aren't coming from sugar, right? So, so he's right on that point. Is that a negative? And this is very difficult with with human biology, is is what is a negative and what isn't. So if you and I were to go do a a squat workout, and then we were to take some imaging done of our thighs and see the absolute bloody mess we made of the muscle fibers, we would look at each other and be like, okay, we are never, ever, ever doing that again. Because whatever (laughs) we do, if we do that again, I I don't think we will use our legs. Yeah. But then if we look at our legs four days later, we're like, oh, whoa, they just completely reorganized. Everything looks great. I think they're actually bigger. Man, yeah, maybe we should do that again, right? Same with eating protein. If you were to look at what happens to the body a half hour after eating protein, you'd be like, oh, holy cow. I look, mean. all those amino acids are entering muscles. If we just keep doing this, we're going to look like Arnold in like a week and a half. Like, this is amazing. But then two days later, we look at it, and we're like, oh, huh. We're kind of right back to where we were. Something's not quite going on here. So things that appear to be negatives, and this is kind of um, hormesis, small amounts of negatives can actually result in a long-term benefit. Um, things that look like a small benefit can actually eventually be a, a negative. You really have to kind of look at the sum total of what's going on. A lot of what we do with health and fitness is, is measure surrogate endpoints, right? So markers, and hope that we know what those markers mean. I mean, you even look at the... Protein breakdown that occurs as a result of the workout. And some people are like, well, I want to take protein or basic acids before I work out to prevent that. But then you've got to step back and be like, unless that's an important part of the muscle building process is the initial tear down, right? Or, or you know, it's very, very difficult. Sorry, it's very easy to make these grandiose statements that something's good for you or bad for you, but very difficult to actually look at long term life and health and be like, huh, was I right or wrong there? So. Well, I think that most of those, the, the points he raised, the the surrogate endpoints are, are correct data. Their meaning is, is what we probably have to stop and really debate and interpret properly.
0: Yeah, he, he, he's a big proponent of keeping the metabolism, you know, at a very high rate. So he's, he's a big, big proponent of thyroid and making sure that the thyroid doesn't get suppressed. But when I, for, just from my sort of studying, like, we are, humans are generally a feast, famine beast. So in the summertime... You know if you look at kind of evolutionary biology they would say we were meant to get a bit fatter and a bit insulin resistant in the summer because we wanted to, to, to have that as a safety mechanism for a hibernation state in the winter when we when we became to run our body on free fatty acids and we needed to actually go into a hypo metabolic state in winter because there just wasn't the food around whereas I think as you said he kind of takes the surrogate endpoint maybe and you know if, if you actually the fact that we don't have any winters anymore now, 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 these actual things that were helpful for us in a, f- in a hibernation situation are actually things that harm us now with heart disease and diabetes and cancer. Maybe that, that's kind of an evolutionary biology kind of take on it. Yeah, I like to
1: look at the, the idea that up until the age of about anywhere from 18 to 21, well, I won't even go higher, 25, Yeah, we are developing. Yeah, yeah. Deve- but after that, what we're doing is the slow decay of life. Yeah. Like, and it, 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 it's morbid as it sounds. The The act of living is involved in the sort of a decay process that eventually catches up to us. So, the absolute healthiest thing we could do is stick ourselves in stasis like Captain America, right? And then we're, we're rocking. But that's not maybe <laughs> the ideal, right? It's maybe the ideal is to realize this decay is happening um, and live the best life possible um, without maybe getting too obsessed over how long we're going to live, because I really do believe the length of our life will be largely dependent on the um, health services provided by the nation we live in, um, combined with pharmaceutical advances. I really don't think that intermittent fasting is going to make me live to 250. Uh, What it might make me do is, you know, at 60, I may still feel awesome with some of my friends who don't fast may kind of feel like a beaten-down 60-year-old. That difference may occur, but in terms of overall life, you know, the things that are going to catch up with us are going to catch up with us, and, and the things that are going to end our lives are going to end our lives. Yeah. Most of the things that I think happen in between, a lot of that's going to come down to just mindset and how you deal with stresses in your life.
0: Just last one or two questions, Brad, and then I'll let you go. Yeah. Um, supplements, do, do you have any recommendation for supplements? I, I know with regards to training fasted. I know what Martin Birkin and some of people. They recommend BCAAs while you train. Do you have any taken any supplements for? So
1: there is time and place for a, a, a fair number of supplements, and I, I think that the problem we run into with supplements is that uh, they're meant to supplement diet in very specific cases. So for me, uh, a very overweight man would have different supplemental needs and, and possibilities than a very lean man, right? Like. So it really depends on the individual. Uh, you, you look at things like, you know, he, even testosterone boosts, as funny as it sounds, but the, the people who need a testosterone boost, the leaner a man gets, generally the better their sort of testosterone metabolism is. A very overweight man, a man who's been overeating, will tend to see a very large suppression of, of, of testosterone. They may be the people who need a testosterone supplement, right? It's never been tested, because we just tested test and supplements that have your average university-age male, right? So, you know, whether it's ZMA, even, even something as, as, as unproven as tribulus, right? There, there are certain populations where we're like, hey, you know, it still might make sense here if there's an effect. It hasn't been studied, but that's why I'm, I'm, as much as I don't like the crutching on supplements that some people do, I don't like to completely rule them out because there's so many factors at play I think that partly explains why you know ten guys could be like I tried that and sucked, and one guy could be like, I tried that and I really, I really felt it made a difference." Right? Yeah. It could be complete placebo.
0: philosophy are you just uh just to eat real food guy you know have have a bit of cake or whatever every now and again just you know don't take it too seriously what's your what's your nutritional philosophy
1: and then by mistake you eat a food from your bad food list, it leads you to a period of overeating, a period of heightened eating, body eating a certain amount of calories and figure out, oh, okay, roughly this amount of food, roughly this amount of food or the food that I like, keeps me about here, which is where I really like to be. And if I have a photo shoot coming up or I'm going to a beach or something, I know that I can subtract a little bit of food out of that and I'll get changed. But I know that anything over this, every time I eat a little bit too much, my waist starts to creep up. And, you know, maybe in the right light with the right posing, I can't really tell in the mirror, but, you know, the measuring tape doesn't lie. It's up couple days in a row, I'm like, okay, this is going somewhere I don't want to go, I'm going to pull back a bit on how much I eat. You take that approach, it it, it actually becomes fairly easy to to manage your food intake. Without getting all crazy on on knowing that you eat 2,791 and a half calories.
0: Yeah, yeah. Last two questions and then that's it. What are you going to eat today?
1: Good question. All right, so tomorrow is is when my family is celebrating Easter with an Easter egg hunt. Uh, my kids are going to find the eggs, and then I'm going to steal them and eat them. So I know <laughs> tomorrow is going to be a slightly higher intake of, of, of calories. So what I've got on tab for tonight is I just got a, just a really, really good duck breast from a, a store down the street. I've only ever cooked duck once before. So I'm going to give it a go. Uh, let me just check the fridge here. I've got some broccoli left over from a couple of minutes ago, so I'm going to steam up some broccoli. I have, oh, you know what else I have is uh, I was watching, um, where was I? I got a restaurant, in the background was uh, a cooking show, and it was one of Gordon Ramsay ones, and he was eating pasta that was black because it was done with squid ink, and I had to be in a store and see it, so I'd buy it. So I don't know what it tastes like, but I'm going to give that a go tonight as well.
0: Awesome.
1: And then uh, I'm probably not going to do any form of dessert tonight because of what's gonna to happen tomorrow. <laughs> so I'm still gonna eat be something really cool, and um, really fun and then but I'm also aware of what's
0: Find out more from you, and do you have any projects in the works?
1: Okay, for more of me, the um, the blatant pitch of a book is at www.eatstockeat.com. That's where you're gonna find uh, me begging you to buy the book. So more information, more of my writing, can be found at bradpilon.com. That's my blog, and then just for general interaction, I'm I'm okay on Facebook. I check it every once in a while, but. Facebook.com forward slash Brad Pilon. But I really enjoy Twitter. I like the way I can interact with people on Twitter. So I'm on there all the time. And I think it's just at Brad Pilon. You can find me at pretty much any one of those. And Pilon is P I L O N. And uh, okay, I'm, I'm
0: on the net, as they say. Brad, I uh, just want to say thanks a minute again for taking taking an uh, over an hour of your time out of your day to, to come on to my podcast. I uh, re- really appreciate it. Hey, no worries, my friend. Uh, okay, guys, for all of you listening, thanks again for downloading the podcast and listening in when you here your Brad. Uh, hopefully I'll be back again soon, so take care and stay strong.